You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and happy Monday afternoon. Welcome to the uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Stenu, the uh, Senior Editor at uh, Real Vision, sending to you live the 18th of uh, July. The economic slowdown is rather evident again. Uh, if we watch the news flow of the day, Apple is planning on slowing spending and hiring growth. Uh, due to uh, the upcoming economic slowdown, basically. And that news led equities uh, lower on the day, with Nasdaq ending almost 1% uh, lower. To debate what lies ahead for the uh, economy with me today, I've invited a uh, macroeconomic superstar, in my view, um, to the show, Luke Roman, the founder of uh, Forest for the Trees. Very warm welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Andreas. It's great to be here. Luke, I uh, wanted to start uh, today's discussion with a very fresh data print that we received today from the National Association of Home Builders. It's basically a, a survey designed to uh, gauge the uh, housing market conditions, and it dropped 12 index points. Please give us your sort of top-down view of the economy one, two months ahead. Yeah, I think uh, based on what we're hearing, we saw uh, back in May, third week of May, uh, the U.S. economy not just tap the brakes, but slam your face off the steering wheel, step on the brakes. Uh, and what we've been hearing in the last couple of weeks has been that the U.S. economy has hit uh, a, another slamming of the brakes. And I think this National Association of Home Builder data point uh, is simply probably at the leading edge of what is likely to be um, a series of pretty surprisingly negative data points in the U.S. Uh, economy over the next one to two months. How will this impact the Federal Reserve if we get this series of uh, negative surprises in the real economy? I think if we look at it in a vacuum of purely the economics, I think it pulls forward the day where they pause uh, interest rate hikes. I would expect them to say something along the lines of we're going to become more data dependent or something. Uh, and, and, and I still think ultimately that uh, that will take place. That pause, the last Fed hike will take place by the end of August of this year. Uh, with that said, that's in a vacuum. The wild card in all of this is the geopolitics, which uh, is that given what has what has happened with Russia invading Ukraine, 
uh, and the tensions around that, uh, to the extent that the dollar sanctions that the U.S. has put on Russia have largely not worked uh, the way they had hoped, certainly not to the severity they had hoped, then the wild card in all of this is that the United States realizes that uh, Russia's hand is stronger than they thought, and the U.S. is uh, basically, the, the, the Fed has become a policy arm of Treasury and that uh, they are running effectively a playbook scene at the end of the movie in Platoon where the the base is overrun by enemy soldiers and they call in an airstrike in on, on top of themselves, uh, hoping to basically kill as many of uh, the enemy soldiers uh, while acknowledging that they're probably going to kill a lot of their own soldiers too. And so I think there is a non-zero chance. I, I, I thought it was a really tiny percentage chance three, four, five months ago. Over the last couple of months, given uh, the headlines we're seeing around the tensions, around the potential energy crisis, et cetera, uh, I, I, I still think it's the minority, uh, a minority chance, but I think there's a real chance that the Fed has been weaponized by Treasury. Uh, and despite this sharp slowdown in the U.S. economy, they go ahead with tightening. And if they do that, uh, you're going to want to own dollars. Um, and that's about it. Uh, everything else, I think, will fall in that environment. Uh, and then from there, things get really hairy uh, uh, in the economy, in the politics. I'd be surprised if they do that a couple months ahead of a midterm election. Like I said, I still think it's a tail risk. But ultimately, my base case is that uh, what we're likely to see, in my view, in the U.S. economic data over the next month or two is likely to pull forward uh, the day uh, consensus of where the day of where the Fed is forced to pause hike. If we look at the current market pricing uh, of the Federal Reserve, uh, we can take the euro dollar futures curve as the example of that. Uh, the market at least tends to agree that uh, the pivot or the pause is upcoming within, say, the next six to seven months. What would be the trigger for an even earlier pivot than that? I think it has to be a problem somewhere in the treasury market. Uh, you've been seeing auctions get sloppier and sloppier. Uh, you've been seeing uh, volatility in the treasury market get higher and higher. A few weeks back, you saw uh, for a span of time, a few Fridays back, you saw the uh, mortgage-backed market in the United States go no bid for a little bit, which is not very conducive uh, to uh, U.S. economic growth. <laughs> so I ultimately think it would it, it's going to have to be some problem in the treasury market um you know that and and for me when you define what that could be that could be as extreme as something that we saw at the short end with the repo rate spike in september 2019 uh it could be as subtle as what we've seen uh numerous times since maybe most pronounced in march 2020 where you saw the treasury market begin crashing alongside stocks uh rising yields into a recession again is very non-conducive to forget the u.s economy it's very non-conducive to the u.s government's funding status so that to me i think it has to be something around the treasury market that forces the fed to pause um you could also maybe get some good news on energy um i i, I think uh I think a window on that may have passed with Biden having been in Saudi last week and oil having already been off the highs, but but we'll see. But I think the real one, the real the real big thing to watch is is Treasury market and in particular dysfunction in the Treasury market. 
If you ask me, we already see signs of uh, liquidity distress emerging um, in the bond markets. Uh, take, for example, the amount of fails to deliver in the uh, repo space. It's rising week after week. Would that be one of the gauges that you would follow over the coming months in terms of gauging the liquidity stress in markets? I think it would be probably one of a of a of a uh, you know a, a a a number of them in trying to put together the mosaic. Um, it, it, there's no, I would say, one thing, but yeah, I, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at what has happened to uh, FX hedge treasury yields is a big one. I think when you look at uh, the uh, FX hedged yields of U.S. treasuries for European investors, they're all-time lows. Uh, yen, they're near all-time lows. They are negative, uh, which means as you see, um, you basically you are you are paying foreign investors not to buy treasuries at this point on an FX hedged basis. And so when we've seen these types of negative numbers in the past, uh, it has generally uh, stress in credit markets have generally followed pretty quickly. Uh, Fed pivots have generally followed pretty quickly. We're already there. So some a big part of that, of course, uh, in terms of driving that is the strength of the dollar. And so the dollar is already strong enough to create some very severe uh, to create increasingly severe, I should say, uh, stresses in the credit markets and treasury markets specifically. So I think it's coming to a head rapidly, and that's ultimately the basis for why I think the Fed's going to be forced to pivot uh, by the end of August. One thing is the Fed outlook, uh, but the fiscal policymakers can obviously also try and tackle the current situation via, for example, austerity measures. Um, you recently made the case, Luke, that uh, policymakers are sort of deluding themselves that austerity is still an option. What do you mean by that? Please unpack it. Sure. So once you, when you look back throughout history, um, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff uh, did a piece, a uh, research report, uh, a book, uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I guess now, uh, say, and the title of the report is, It's Different This Time. And it went back through, I want to say, 500 years of sovereign debt crises. And um, somebody whose work I, I, I read uh, every time I can get my hands on is a, a gentleman named Brian Hirschman and Hirschman Capital. And I've looked at the, their data. He's unpacked it a different way. But the gist of it is, is if you look back over uh, the last 120 years, 98 uh, percent of sovereigns that had debt to GDP go to 130 percent ended up defaulting on their sovereign debt. Now, default happens one of three ways. You can go austerity, you can go restructuring, or you can go a, a span of, of high inflation to basically inflate debt to GDP back down to sustainable levels. Almost all of them work this default via inflation simply because you're a sovereign, you can print money. That's usually how it works out. Uh, and so the United States is, you know, number one, obviously, in our business, 98% shots over, over 120 years, they don't come around very much uh, in, in, in the investing business. Uh, furthermore, Hirschman has pointed out that if you look at the debt, if you nations since 1991, over 110% of GDP uh, and deficits to GDP of 11% or more, uh, there have been 18 nations in 30 years that have had that happen. 100% of the 18 nations defaulted on their debt, usually via high inflation. So the point here is that the United States went above 130% in 2020. The United States remains above the 110% threshold in the second case, and U.S. deficits have already exceeded the 12% or the 11% threshold last year, obviously, 
that was coming off the COVID crisis. So I think they, between that and reserve status for the U.S., there's a bit of a respite. However, if policymakers put the U.S. into recession via austerity, it's basically a layup that, that, that deficits the percent of GDP, which are currently around 6 to 7%, the highest they've ever been to start a Fed tightening cycle, by the way. They are, it's a layup for them to get to 10 to 11% of GDP in just a modest recession, let alone a severe crisis. And so the U.S. at that point would be satisfying those two conditions. Now, and, and, I, and I failed to mention, 18 out of 18 countries that satisfy those conditions over the last 30 years defaulted on their debt within two years. And so now, is the U.S. going to default on treasuries? No. Uh, is the Fed, to me, what that tells me is that these conditions have really already been satisfied. The U.S. is the Fed's going to have to return to effectively monetizing U.S. deficits, um, regard because austerity when the U.S. government is 22 percent of GDP uh, is simply not a a politically uh, palatable policy option. It's not an economically palatable policy option because when you're 22 percent of GDP and you cut spending 20 percent like Janet Yellen just did in the last couple of months what you end up doing is you get GDP down. And when you get GDP down, when debt to GDP is still 125%, like it is in the United States, what you get is a debt death spiral, where you get GDP down, uh, as long as your interest rates are above, since you can't take your nominal rates negative as the reserve currency issuer, uh, debt goes up and up, GDP goes down. So ultimately, sooner or later, and again, within two years, the Fed's got to come back uh, and, and start remonetizing. So uh, I, I, that's ultimately when you look at the breakdown of the history of where the U.S. hit, of the structural nature of these deficits. I mean, you're looking at 115 percent of tax receipts are, are Treasury spending, entitlements, and defense alone. Let alone everything else the U.S. government spends money on. So there are things we can't cut, um, and and then we can print the money. So I think ultimately um, this this view that quickly became consensus uh, that 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 Powell can be another Volcker uh, and and run a uh, you know can tighten policy and Yellen can can implement austerity at the fiscal level uh, it's a delusion it's it's not going to happen and and I think we are in the very early stages uh, when you talk about the home builder survey when you talk about what Apple's saying when you're talking about what the U.S. GDP did in the first half of the year we're in the very early stages of this being proven to be a delusion that austerity the ability to do austerity in the U.S. is a complete delusion. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I hosted the uh, UK economist Frances Coppola last week on, on this show, and she basically forecasts a new era of very easy fiscal policy paired with tighter monetary policy. Do you think that mix can work to solve the current situation? You know, that's the old, that's the old Druckenmiller playbook, right? Um, you know, a lot of fiscal stimulus and tight, you know, loose fiscal, tight monetary, and it's really good for your currency. And uh, it, it worked, you know, Vol uh, in, in, in uh, Soros's book, uh, or excuse me, in the, in the book Market Wizards by Jack Schwager, Druckenmiller talked about how um, when the Germans did that, 
after reunification. It was great for the Deutschmark in the 90s. And the U.S. did it in the early 80s. It was great for the dollar. Uh, do I think they can do it again? No. And the reason I think they can't do it again is what we just described is going to be really good for the currency. If the dollar strengthens, which would happen if you did that, what, what uh, Coppola said, uh, we're already seeing that there isn't sufficient demand for treasuries to avoid dysfunction in the treasury market with the dollar where it is today. So you talk about taking the dollar even higher, you're going to be sending FX hedge treasury yields even lower. Uh, and so basically you would see a nonlinear increase in deficits uh, that would likely send interest rates higher. And again, from a when, when the U.S. ran this in 82, debt, debt to GDP was 30%. Uh, the Germans have always been much more fiscally uh, restrained, certainly back then, uh, than, than today. Uh, we're not starting from a position that we can run this, given where the dollar is. You strengthen the dollar from here with that playbook, that Soros, Drucken, Miller, strong dollar playbook, which is deficits up, rates up. Um, you're going to create problems in the global economy around dollar funding and the global economy is the majority you know majority of global gdp right starting in 2014 emerging markets with a majority of global gdp for the first time in 350 years right so you can sort of take every playbook every model that that a lot of economists run prior to 2014 you can throw them in the trash because they're we've never seen anything like this the first time in history that uh, emerging markets are the majority of global energy demand post 2014 or 2015. Again, take all the take all the pre 14 15 models and throw them in trash because they're just you have to modify them or else you're going to come to the wrong conclusion, like what the Fed's doing right now, in my opinion. If we look at the uh, recent signal sent by the Federal Reserve, for example, from Waller, from the committee, uh, he's been very vocal that uh, the Federal Reserve intends to bring inflation adjusted interest rates back into positive territory across the yield curve. Do you think that's even a possible scenario over the next couple of quarters? Sure. If they want to create a bigger crisis than, than 2008, yeah, they could do it. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me, right? These guys, they fly to sound. They're so such political animals. I mean, you go back to, to November of 2020, Larry Summers and Jason Furman, who was an advisor an economic advisor to the Biden administration, or to, uh, uh, to the Obama administration, knows the Biden administration. These guys put out a paper pointing out that it was critical to keep a little r below big G, right? So it's critical to keep nominal rates, or, or excuse me, interest rates below nominal growth. And you're still there for the moment, but if you take real rates positive, you won't be there for very long. And so they're literally advocating a policy that they said would bankrupt the government and break the system two years ago, not even 18 months ago, because the polls stink because of inflation, which was the policy they were advocating. So they actually succeeded what they wanted to do. They actually got the dynamic that they need to get the fiscal situation of the United States to sustainable situation, which is we saw in 2021, 129% debt to GDP fell to 122%. So we delevered debt to GDP by seven percentage points. It took 11% nominal GDP and 8% CPI. Listen, that's what you needed to do. If you didn't want to do that, you should have been an adult and actually implemented austerity 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, but you weren't. You were children and you didn't, you, you, you simply didn't 
you weren't leaders. And so your the failure of leadership on both sides of the aisle in the United States and in other Western social democracies means this is what you have to do. You inflate it, you have to inflate it away. So, but now the polls are saying people are mad about inflation. And so you're going the other way. So I, I, to me, you know, yeah, I saw he said that. I think it's a bad idea. If they do it, sure, you're going to have a tremendous crisis. We're going to see the housing, you know, that, you know, we'll talk again in two months and that housing index will go from 67 to 55 to 45 to 30, obviously well into recessionary levels. And then they'll all be freaking out. Oh, gosh, you know, why are treasury auctions going so badly and why are yields going up in a recession? And this is the worst crisis ever. And the balance sheet can be 20 trillion in 2023. And and so I, I sorry, I'll get you. You've got me a little worked up now. I, I just think there's such politicians flying to sound and i think it's not very helpful to uh you know it's like it's like being on a plane of which we're all riding on knowing the pilot isn't flying by looking out the front window he's looking at the ground as he's flying by and it's fine you know if you're here in the united states you you you, you take off from new york and you fly west and and you can fly the plane like that for like three hours it's great pilots looking out the window and then you hit the rocky mountains and your flight ends really abruptly and and very painfully and that's that's what they're doing it's just I think it's a bad idea, but you know, maybe that's why I'm not on the Fed. In a year from now, will we um, be debating quantitative easing and negative real interest rates again? Oh, I think we'll be beyond debating a year from now. I think it'll already be done. I think they'll be back to it. Yeah, I tend to agree. Let's shift gears a bit and move uh, to the other side of the pond because we got interesting news from the uh, Russian uh, gas company Gazprom today. Uh, they've apparently sent so-called force majeure letters to three clients uh, relating to the lack of gas flow to uh, to Europe. First of all, what do you make of that game of chicken between Russia and Europe right now in terms of the gas supply? I think Putin holds almost all the cards whether people like that or not, that's increasingly looking to be the facts of the matter. Uh, he has the gas and he's got the better balance sheet. I think if I was playing his hand and I wanted to make my point and I wanted to do so in a way that hurt as few women and children, so to speak, and old people as possible, I would shut it off now. And I would let them feel what hot temperatures feel like. And I would let them know that I meant business and that they better get their stuff in order and start paying me how I want to be paid. And they better what all, all the other issues going on around this, because uh, I do think it's a very complex, not black and white, very shades of gray matter. Uh, that's when I would do it versus I think doing it in December, doing it in November, doing it in January. Uh, you're going to make yourself the bad guy. And he's already the bad guy, but you're, you're going to create an unnecessary humanitarian disaster among innocents. And I, 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 like I said, if I was in his shoes, quite frankly, I think it's, 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 it's maybe a sign of goodwill a little bit of like, listen, here's, we're just going to shut it off now and we'll let you guys see how you like summer without it. And, and you come back and call me when you're serious. I want to play a soundbite for you uh, in relation to this debate. Uh, it's from an interview I did with uh, Swiss-German Alexander Stahl, uh, a, a solid commodity expert, um, on this exact topic of the Russian gas supply. And he's pretty convinced that they will never uh, 
re-allow the uh, gas supply uh, to flow again after the maintenance of uh, Nord Stream 1. So let's listen to the soundbite and get back to the discussion. The Europeans need it while they can, but for, for sure now, they're going to do everything to diversify away from it and they're not going to get back to the Russian experiment. In fact, I would argue this, is, uh, this will be the only time in a hundred years where we're going to go through that experiment and something better will come out of it. Now, first, we have to feel the pain for the next couple of years, but at some point, something better will stand there and then we're all glad we don't have to deal with that Russian flow. And you, you're absolutely spot on. They cannot just redirect those gas flows into, into Asia. It needs pipelines, but I think they're going to start to build those and try to redirect as much as they can. But they will have revenue losses. And I think Putin says, look, I have maximum pain from the EU on my sanctions, and they do. Everyone else who says something else and thinks the Russian economy is not contracting and not hurting hard is diluting themselves. I mean, it, it's it's bad over there, for sure. And um, and so probably Putin's way, who only knows escalation, the mafia boss, um, says, okay, so let me inflict maximum pain on Europe too, and that's best done by cutting off the gas now. And then he still gets uh, uh, plenty of revenues from 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 the um, you know from um, the oil situation he has, where his 5.5 million exports of oil still flow uninterrupted. The full interview with Alexander Stahl is available for subscribers uh, on the Real Vision platform from today. Look, uh, I think Alexander is uh, is spot on in his analysis of uh, of Vladimir Putin. Um, if the gas flow stops uh, and it doesn't return, say in 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 August September, uh, would that be enough to send the global economy into a recession? You think? Absolutely. I think it's. Uh, I, I think it'll be catastrophic. Um, I go back to uh, early in my career in the late '90s, um, Southeast Asian crisis. You saw uh, the currency crisis over there. Uh, I remember sitting in morning research meetings where analyst after analyst would tell us, "Don't worry, Asia Pac is only five percent of revenues. It's only ten percent of revenues. It's not going to matter." And yet. Nine months later, the U.S. industrial economy was in a recession. Uh, Twelve months later, ten months later, uh, the global monetary system, global financial system almost collapsed through the long-term capital management link after the Russian default. So uh, it's all about what happens on the margin. It all about, it's all about the inherent leverage in the system. And so on the margin, Europe, Japan, these are orders of magnitude more important regions than what Southeast Asia was to the global economy. You'd be talking about, and this is something we've been writing about for four months now. It's something I've tweeted about a number of times. Europe is effectively running the same economic playbook vis-a-vis -vis Russia and the gas situation as Weimar Germany did in the aftermath of World War One, after the French uh, seized Ruhr Valley coal stores, which is take away some of the energy supplies and then print, print over money to try to maintain the nominal economic Re, you know, some nominal economic illusion, what you end up doing is hyperinflating. Uh, and you're seeing Europe start moving toward hyperinflating. When you're seeing German PPI up 30%, and, and now you're talking about unlimited ECB programs to uh, prevent spreads from blowing out, just to, and it's hilarious to hear them talk about, oh, well, we're just, we want spreads to reflect economic reality. They, 
they are ref- re- re- reflecting economic reality. They'll, you're going to default. Like they, they're going to go broke. You're going to have people in 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 the cold. There's so you're printing money over a loss of energy inputs. Uh, you'll be talking about a, a collapse of the euro. The euro will, you know, parity. It's going to go a lot lower now. Where it starts to get really interesting, and I don't, I'm still not seeing a lot of people talk about the second derivative of this, which is if there's not enough gas, if there's not enough energy, European uh, supply chains are going to break down. When they break down, you're going to have supply chains everywhere around the world break down again. When that happens, global CPI is going to go up again. And we can take every 10-year yield chart of every government around the world and we can draw a line on those charts, rough estimates, right, at the top and the bottom. We can all guess where they are. Where once yields hit that point, the government's going to go broke mathematically. They're going to they're going to default. They're, they're going to go into a debt spiral. They're, it's lowest for the Japanese. It's you know probably marginally higher for the Americans, um, or higher for the Americans, higher for maybe right around the same for the Europeans. The point is is that those lines on those charts. Once that second wave of inflation hits from the global supply chain breakdown that will happen if the Europeans have to shut down their production facilities, because again, these supply chains are so intricate. Europe makes so much. You take it out, you take out their supplies, supply chains are going to collapse again, just like they were a year ago now. And when that happens, we know what happens to CPI now. It goes up 600 basis points, 500 basis points. So now you'd be talking about let's say we bring it down a couple points. We just printed nine, maybe it goes to seven. Now we take it up another five to six. Now we're running 12 to 13% CPI. Is there a government in the world that can afford four, let alone 10? No. Putin, well, actually, Putin can. He's got the best balance sheet. He could absolutely afford it. He could sell his gold, pay it all down, buy off all his foreign debt. So he's, I think, leveraging basically, A, his gas position, but also he's got the, it's a balance sheet contest. And he has by far the best balance sheet versus his opponent. So if this gets to that point, where August, September, they shut the gap. It is hard to overstate. This will make well, the great financial crisis look like a tea party. It, it, is, it, is that, it is that big a deal, in my opinion. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. I ultimately also wanted to pick your brain on the repercussions for the reserve status of the dollar. Um, as a consequence of this ongoing crisis with Russia. We know that both Russia and China have taken firm action uh, over the past couple of quarters. So please unpack for us what's going on in the reserve space, so to speak. I think ultimately we're, we are in the midst of a, of a transition that began probably in the, shortly after the aftermath of, of the great financial crisis when it became apparent to Russia, China, and others that the U.S. had ceased uh, and would forevermore cease to manage the dollar uh, as a as a as a, a, a utility of for the world. And basically, when push came to shove, the Americans would print money. Which, if you're either an energy exporter like Russia, or if you are an creditor to the Americans that imports energy, like 
the Chinese, like the Japanese, like the Europeans, uh, if the Americans were only going to print the money, you have to move to a system where where you gain the ability uh, for these importing nations to uh, buy energy in your own currency. Because if you can do that, you can avoid a balance of payments crisis like Europe is facing now. The, the fix to what Europe is facing is, and I think where this is ultimately going to go, is Europeans are going to go, sorry, America, we have babies freezing in the dark. We need to buy energy in euros from Russia. Russia has agreed to that, and we're moving on. We're going we're gonna to buy energy in euros. The problem with this is you then need to find some asset to settle in. Um, and I continue to think that settlement asset is going to be gold, uh, at least in the interim, uh, at a floating rate. The Europeans floated this proposal out. You can go back to U.S. State Department archives in the 70s uh, when Kissinger was, was, was uh, very uh, involved in the U.S. Uh, administration. The Europeans were looking to uh, settle energy deficits with the Arab oil exporters in gold at a floating rate. Uh, they were going to mark gold up and 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 do that. So this has been something that's been discussed. People say, oh, reserve currency changes take 50 years. This has been discussed for 50 years. Um, and now, but the problem is, is always with humans and, and politics and long cycles, is it takes a long time and it takes a crisis and it takes a severe crisis. And what do we have? We have a severe crisis. The Europeans, the Japanese are going to be forced to choose. Do they want to buy energy in their own currency or do they want to freeze? And that's where this is coming to. So I think we're coming up to a potentially very interesting period in time where we could see some very binary shifts in the, the, the global geopolitical ordering, the monetary system. The reserve. Now, is the dollar still going to be reserve currency? Yeah, I think it will be. Will the treasury still be the primary reserve asset? No, I think it'll be gold. I, when it, if when this happens, I think gold will be orders of magnitude higher. Um, so I think you're really talking, people always ask me, what's going to replace the dollar? Nothing's going to replace the dollar. We're going from a system where the dollar is the global reserve currency, treasury bond is primary reserve asset, to a system where the U.S. buys in dollars, buys energy in dollars, the Europeans buy in euros, the uh, Japanese buy in yen, the Chinese buy in yuan, the Indians buy in rupee, and then you net out any deficits with the energy and, and commodity suppliers, uh, and whatever is net left over gets settled in gold, one way or another, uh, at a floating rate in each currency. That's what I think the system is moving toward. Uh, and there are people that are interested in seeing that happen. There are people that are not interested in seeing that happen. I think some of the geopolitical tensions we're seeing around the world um, are tied to to this shift and 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 people in favor of and against this shift uh, pushing back and forth at each other. We have time for uh, a couple of questions from the audience, Luke. And um, we have a, a great question um, from someone at the Real Vision side. Uh, what happens, in your opinion, if the Fed pauses and inflation stays above 4%? I, I think ultimately um, it pushes them towards some version of yield curve control. Uh, they... <sighs> Remember, austerity is going to send a debt death spiral, basically. Um, I mean, they really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. So what I think it does is, in the short run, it, it probably will push inflation back above four. Uh, this is a problem familiar to places like Argentina, Turkey, et cetera, these twin deficit nations with these balance payments problems, high levels of debt. Uh, I think you'll see jawboning from the Fed again that, hey, it's transitory. They probably won't use that word again because it will trigger uh, PTSD with, with various Fed people. Uh, but the, 
I think they'll try to jawbone that it's not as high as it is. But ultimately, I think uh, it pushes the Fed into some version of yield curve control for a period of time uh, where the Fed says, look, the, 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 you know, the three month treasury is two percent, three percent. The 10 years four and uh, that's it. And and we'll buy at those at those prices. And, and you know, people keep saying, oh, we're Japan. The U.S. is Japan. Well, this is Japan. Uh, the difference is the U.S. runs deficits. Japan didn't run current account deficits. We do. Uh, so uh, it's going to be inflationary. Uh, the U.S. being Japan uh, is going to feel a lot like the U.S. being Argentina with U.S. characteristics. And again, is this how I want it to go? No. Uh, but again, we had 40 years uh, for our political leaders to be adults, and they weren't on both sides of the aisle. And so this is what you get. I've made it my trademark, Luke, to uh, conclude the daily briefing with a meme. Um, and today's meme is basically one for the friends enthusiasts <laughs> out there. Um, the bond market is telling the Fed to pivot as loud as Ross yells at Rachel to pivot the couch <laughs> in the friend, uh, friends uh, episode. And if you're right, Luke, uh, then I guess the pivot is uh, almost around the corner. It will certainly be uh, very interesting to follow that. Luke Roman, the founder of uh, Forest for the Trees, it was a pleasure to interview you. Thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you, Andreas. I enjoyed it. Uh, this concludes the daily briefing for today. My colleague Ash Bennington will be back tomorrow. Uh, so see you there. Thank you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.